Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. As we slouch into the middling decade of the 21st century, it's rare for a novel, that quintessential 19th century form, to feel transgressive. And yet the appointment, Katerina Volkmer's debut, manages this with some distance to spare. How? In part, it's the themes. The novel's hundred or so pages cover a lot of ground, from family to fascism, sex robots to genocide, body horror to Bambi, and perhaps crucially, everything in between. However, it's not the themes alone, all of which have been tackled elsewhere, although perhaps never between the same two covers. No, it's also Volkmer's unbending commitment to the voice that makes the appointment feel so radical. The spikiness but also freshness of the monologue delivered in a surgery room to a doctor with his head buried between the narrator's legs. It's an astonishing, wild, thought-provoking read, and I'm very happy to say Katerina Volkmer joins me to discuss it today. Katerina, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so delighted you've been able to join us because the the appointment was really one of the most um, surprising and, as I say, kind of um, refreshing reads I've had in the past year. Um, I'd like to begin with this voice because I was thinking before the interview today um, of the last time that I felt an author so utterly committed to the voice. And when I say committed, I mean sort of you know, not sort of having kind of little winks and nudges or little asides to kind of say to the reader, okay, we're all in this together, or you know what I'm doing, like giving the reader a bit of, let's say, breathing space outside the the conceit of the voice. And the only one I could think of in any kind of recent times was American Psycho. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I mean, your your narrator in your book has very little to do with Patrick Bateman, but I just think there's something in that sort of commitment and that sort of realization of this voice, which it, at least in, to my mind associated the two books. So I guess where I want to begin is with that voice. Um, could you talk a little bit about how it came to you? Was it through perhaps a reflection around some of the ideas, some of the themes that the novel tackles? Or did the voice come to you in a sense kind of from nowhere? And then because of the character of that voice, the the kind of the themes and the ideas of the novel were kind of drawn in? It kind of came to me from nowhere. I've sort of stopped saying I started hearing the voice at some point because mm. I feel like I always sound a bit insane when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bit worrying. Um, but really, I I was working with a few sort of, well, shorter pieces um, and they, they were sort of the moment when this voice was born. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it was just a, for me. It was just a question of of following her, um, and it was always it was always the voice, but she was always already talking to Doctor Doctor Zilligman in my head. Mm-hmm. Like she was always talking to someone. Um, but it was quite a joyful experience, really, to follow to follow her, but also to um, allow for her to make me and I think certain readers feel quite uncomfortable sometimes because mm. I think there is an element that um, it, this voice makes people feel uncomfortable. But I feel quite happy when people tell me that <laughs> it made them feel uncomfortable because I think that's in a way one of the things that she's trying to achieve. Um, mm. That's interesting, that that sense of kind of discomfort, because um, I said in the introduction, like I, I described the novel as transgressive. And I think uh, I, w- I want to be clear that sort of I don't see that at the same as kind of shocking. Like I don't I don't because you sometimes read novels where you, it's clear that the author is setting out to shock. And honestly, often that can be a little bit boring in a way because mm. you can kind of you can see the kind of the mechanics of it you could see how they're ramping up the kind of uh the horror or the subject matter to 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 achieve a certain emotional effect and it feels kind of quite manipulative but that's that's yeah that's not you don't get a sense that you were you were setting out to shock and yet there's definitely a sense that you with this voice you wanted to to dig that you wanted to kind of get to the the roots of something um now you said in your first answer that this sort of sometimes the voice would make you feel uncomfortable so even was that sort of that process of try of digging was that something which you set out to do or was that something which the voice almost compelled you to do i think it almost compelled me to do it i mean i i agree with you i don't find it as shocking as like because I guess I'm also used to to my own mind (laughs) um but I think yeah what was interesting to me about the project was to just allow my mind to go to all these to all these places and to not have any um sort of barriers be they sort of moral you know I, I don't know to just because I think it's it's something that we don't do often enough to kind of you know, allow ourselves to go to to the places where even you know it might hurt, it might be uncomfortable. But I think it's um, on a personal level, but also on a sort of national level, because I mm-hmm. guess that's something that the book is trying to do is to combine those two aspects. Um, I think it's important to go to to go to these places, mm. and on the whole, it was quite joyful to you know follow her, but. Um, mm. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it um, it maybe took a bit of courage, but yeah, no, I think I think it's um, it was worthwhile. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we've talked obviously about the sort of the the voice in a little bit of an sort of an abstract way so far, um, but let's let's just talk a little bit about the narrator herself. Now we, we're um, I'm going to refer to her as the, the narrator throughout because she's unnamed. We don't we don't get to know what she's called, but we do get to know certain aspects of her life, kind of where she's coming from, her situation. But they are also things which are kind of sort of unveiled as the as the narrative progresses. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to to introduce uh, the narrator to our listeners as much as you think they should know before reading. Yes, sure. So the narrator is a 
a young German woman and uh, she's in London. She's lived in London for a few years. Um, and the monologue um, takes place over, over a few hours where she's with this doctor called Dr. Seligman. And um, he is busy between her legs. And um, while she's busy there, she tells him about, you know, her life, the things that, that worry her, the things that made her, you know, change country. Um, and I quite like to think about it as a reflection on identity, but identity mm. in a sort of physical sense, the identity that our body brings with it, and also identity in a national sense. And mm -hmm. um, whether we can change it, that was one of the questions that sort of drove me, I guess, what what can we change about ourselves? Are we able to change anything really? Mm -hmm. um, and also what it means to be born into a body. It sounds mm -hmm. very basic, but I was just like, what does that actually mean? Because it means so much, I think. Mm. Um, and she's exploring all of these questions. Yeah, mm. And I think particularly that question of, um, I mean, you say she's a German woman in London. So she sort of, she has, left her country of birth behind but it's clear from the very early pages that that country its history its language um the family that she left behind there weigh very very heavily on her um, on her thoughts and the way that she kind of uh apprehends the the world is there something about the kind of the the way that a German in London sort of apprehends history that is fundamentally different, do you think, to a British person in London? Like, are these, is, is there sort of a, a sort of a clash, not just on the sort of the, the facts that one talks about, but the very way in which one uh, understands and sort of, yeah, apprehends and let's say processes events from, from the past? I think they're very different. I mean, I, I, um, I always remember when I first moved here, which was a long time ago, um, I was so surprised that it's a small detail, but that soldiers are referred to as heroes here and mm -hmm. which in, in a German context, you would never, you would just, it's just unimaginable. Um, and I think here people are maybe just about to start questioning <clears throat> some aspects of their, of their history, but I always felt like, generally people were quite comfortable with their past which mm -hmm. um for a german obviously is is unless you're quite deranged um <clears throat> is is not available as an option mm -hmm. you know but i think here um even though i think this country also has a very problematic history i think it's only just beginning to 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 maybe think about that and so mm -hmm. i think it's and i think it's always if you and i'm sure you can relate to this it's if if you live abroad you will always have a different perspective i think mm -hmm. on your own country and it's a perspective that will never go away again you know even if mm -hmm. i move back to germany now i wouldn't be able to look at them with the same with the same eyes but i think here people <clears throat> i mean i haven't been to school here but i get the feeling that they're raised with quite a lot of pride in their in their history, which mm -hmm. we aren't. Um. 
And quite, I think there's something also perhaps different about the sort of the the level of knowledge with which uh, people are sort of forced to engage with their history. I was recording an interview a few a month or so back now with um, Elif Shafak, and she said um, about people in Turkey. She said like people in Turkey are obsessed with Turkish history, but actually know very little about it. Mm. Um, and that struck me as something that was kind of true about British people as well, that this is sort of, you know, it, particularly when we talk, of, we look at the sort of the Brexit debate of the last few years, that there is sort of, there are certain historical events or moments which uh, are very key to the national psyche. But at the same time, we are not sort of uh, obliged, I guess, to have a sort of a detailed understanding of those events. And one thing that it struck me reading the appointment and sort of getting to know the narrator was that sort of German people, perhaps more than any other nation, seem burdened with having to to know the details of their history, like having to having to to know the numbers, having to know the dates, having to know the people, and having that kind of constantly a present and constantly kind of shaping the national psyche. Um, they do, <clears throat> um, because I guess it's 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 also quite, in some ways, obviously, I think quite basic because they they lost the war, so they you know oh. they, they <laughs> um, so they had to engage with it in a, in a different way. Um, the thing that I'm wondering about is how I don't even can use that word how successful the engagement was because I think mm-hmm. it's it's. Uh, flawed in many ways and that they they sometimes get quite smug because they think they've they, they did their bit and they've you know come to terms with their history and they've been denazified and all of that mm-hmm. um and yet there are an awful lot of of continuities of mm-hmm. of fascism even of colonialism in in germany today i think um and if you as you could see from our recent elections it's a country that has a, a huge problem with neo-fascism mm-hmm. But still, yes, it's 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 very different because you um, and I'm in a strange way quite grateful for that because you're not raised with any kind of well, I wasn't patriotism like for instance in in Britain I find it so strange how often you see a British flag mm-hmm. um, if I if I if I, if I see someone like with a German flag I'm just like oh my god what are you what are you doing. <laughs> <laughs> And um, there was a, I don't know when it was, so there was a World Cup in Germany, I think, at some point. And um, people were were waving a lot of flags, and that was the first time that they felt it was okay to do that. I still found Mm -hmm. it quite uncomfortable, but I think there are certain, like, symbols and things that aren't available to us. Mm -hmm. And, And here, I find at the moment, people, they struggle so much with things that I find obvious like when they took down some of those statues um in uh, connection with the black lives matter black lives matter movement um i was just like yes statues come and go you know why Mm -hmm. is that such a big (laughs) why is that such a big deal um and there are always these moments it's also like when notre dame was on fire for Mm -hmm. instance and some french people i know they were in tears and and i asked some of my german friends i said is there any building in Germany where you would feel like that? And they said, no, there isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a very... That's really interesting. Yeah, but but we aren't... We don't form these kind of attachments, I mm-hmm. think. 
It's interesting what you said about the um, the continuity as well, because, and I think it's a trap that I've fallen into already in this is interviews. Like we were, I've been referring to sort of German history, whereas in fact, what I'm really talking about is the Second World War mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, the rise of Hitler and the rise of fascism. And that's sort of essentially what we're talking about, a 15 year parentheses in a way in a, in sort of in, in German history, which, which occupies such a weight in uh in the understanding of germany i have the feeling within germany itself but also outside of germany that sort of the idea of history as a continuum the idea that uh what happened during that time was caused by what came before and will have an effect on what came after is almost something which which is, is is difficult for people to process and as a result and i think this feeds in to uh our narrator it becomes something almost it's sort of like almost like historical fetishism mm-hmm. in a way like it's sort of it's it's it it allows it gives people a certain sort of uh space in which they can move and they can react to almost kind of protected from what came before and what came after yes and that's also what the to me partly what the sexy hitler is about which mm-hmm. is something that Caused a lot of <laughs> outrage. <laughs> Just explain that to our listeners. Give her what the, the sexy Hitler is. So um, the, the narrator at some point is uh, obliged to go and see a therapist and mm-hmm. um, to sort of get out of the therapy sessions. She comes up with sort of sexual fantasies about Hitler. And she has all these kind of quite elaborate fantasies about him. And um, which I think is one of the reasons why for so long nobody wanted to publish the book in Germany. And but, but for me, when I wrote it, it wasn't such a it wasn't like a major part of the book. Mm-hmm. But it is for me to do with this obsession because there is mm-hmm. this obsession with Hitler, and 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 then you always have German TV programs, and they say, oh yeah, and then Hitler invaded Poland, and I'm like, no, he didn't. You know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> And there's people hide behind him as well, mm-hmm. I think. And and there is this, I was at a bookshop in London here the other day and th- th- there were entire shelves dedicated to the man, entire bookshelves, mm-hmm. you know. And there's definitely an obsession here with it as well, which I find quite um, strange. And I think all obsessions have a sexual element as well, mm-hmm. which which is one of these, I think, an example of what, people might find uncomfortable but i think there is there is a that kind of you know part to it so yeah that's mm-hmm. the one of the roots of the of the sexy hitler <laughs> <laughs> and i think also there's the um the sort of the the counterpoint to that is of course the um the the holocaust as well which has this sort of um again uh, appropriately sort of enormous kind of cultural and historical weight but again particularly i think culturally has become something almost kind of a, a cultural artifact which mm-hmm. kind of people feel that they can kind of respond to and manipulate in a way that um almost turns the the holocaust the event itself into a kind of into a kind of a product um i remember at a at a reading in Paris many years ago, seeing uh, Art Spiegelman talking about this. And he used a a term, which I think he coined, which he, he called it hollow kitsch. Yeah. We, we all know, we all know those kind of films, which you sort of use the Holocaust almost as a way to sort of 
pull on the emotional heartstrings. And that seems to be something which sort of deeply troubles the the narrator of the appointment. Yes, because I think it's there's a whole industry attached to it these days. And I think um I like the I like the term hollow kitsch a lot because I feel like it really it really captures something and um and I think it makes it very hard to to get to the bottom of the actual story. Um mm-hmm. And I even found when I when I went to visit Auschwitz a few years ago, I found it so hard to actually connect to the place because I feel like we've seen it a million mm. times in films and you know TV shows, and it's such a mm. like a sort of standard background by now that when you go to the actual place, it's, it becomes very hard to really um, find it in your heart, you know, and to really. Mm-hmm be present and and be there i i found and i think that's the effect that this kind of <clears throat> uh, literature and these kind of films have they i think rather than bringing you closer to the to the actual thing they they remove you from mm-hmm. it i think um and i usually find these um films quite unhelpful and mm-hmm. then by contrast, I um I went uh, a few years ago as well. I went to uh, to Kiev to go and see the the ravine and Babinia, which was the biggest massacre I think committed during the Third Reich. And there you've got nothing. You've got one monument, but you've got nothing. And I found that much more moving. And that was like the most haunting thing I've ever seen. But but Auschwitz itself has. I mean, it becomes some sort of Disneyland, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see people with their selfie sticks. You can now buy chocolate bars and Birkenau. And it's so, mm. it, it it made it really difficult for me personally to, to really um, get to the place, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's interesting because, um, for, firstly, you put me in mind of, uh, how I often hear people who visit Paris for the first time talking about the Mona Lisa, you know, they sort of, they go to the Louvre, they queue up for hours, they go in and they come away. So that's kind of smaller than I expected. And that's a sort of, (laughs) this sort of this, 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 uh, this horror historically important artwork becomes something which you kind of, you're prevented from having a genuine connection to because of Mm -hmm. the, the familiarity with it. Um, But with something like the Mona Lisa, that's sort of, in a sense, one could say inconsequential. Like there's no, uh, it, it doesn't matter in, in in any kind of grand sense whether whether you know this painting by a long dead artist moves you or not. But the problem with the the reaction, like you're talking about with when visiting Auschwitz, and that we find with with our narrator, is that sort of she when she encounters Jewish people. It's almost like she's encountering a kind of, I think she says at a moment, sort of almost like a mythical, magical creature because of the way that the the Jewish people have been talked about and the Holocaust have been talked about and the way that she was brought up in this sort of German culture, which circumscribed the way in which one can talk about it, that she was prevented from having a sort of a genuine human connection with the Jewish people that she meets. Yeah, and I think it's very it's very true that a lot of German people they would know what you know, they would know what the Shoah is, but they wouldn't know what Yom Kippur is, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? They have no connection to contemporary Jewish life. And 
and I think that's also this 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 hollow kitsch. It gives you a very sort of um, set version of things, right? This is how it was. This is, you know, how history happened, and it doesn't really allow for different versions. And and I think combined with that, you you have this fear almost of engaging with um, contemporary Jewish life, which obviously exists in in Germany today, but I don't think it's very visible and people haven't really found a way yet to um to, to to engage with it without being awkward and and i think what they sometimes do is they then put jewish people on like a pedestal mm-hmm. and i think whenever you put people on a pedestal it's you create an unhealthy um relationship and um and so i think yeah it it, it sort of interested me what what happened when you when you when you say, oh, I, you know, I, I want to do it differently. I think the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin is ugly as hell. Like, you know, can, can we not? <laughs> I do think it's ugly, and who wants to be remembered like that? And and to 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 find a different way and to try and have different conversations. And one of the outcomes of the of the novel that I'm very sort of grateful for is that I've had very interesting conversations with some of my jewish readers in different countries and they largely seem to really appreciate this you know because mm-hmm. um usually you don't get a, a german perspective so openly i think because mm-hmm. people usually just say oh we're really sorry you know but they don't really want to they don't want to really let it get very close to them i think mm-hmm. and i try to let it get very close to see what happens yeah yeah, yeah. And that that's that that idea about the, the the pedestal, I think, is crucial in a way because it's sort of the 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 irony of putting anybody on a pedestal is it it has a, an almost dehumanizing effect. Mm-hmm. And even even though one might say, well, it's sort of it, it's done. It's, of course, it's, a, it's a question of sort of veneration, but even veneration is is dehumanizing. It's sort of it's sort of changing the the level with which one what engages with uh with the subject yeah absolutely absolutely i think and it also um it, it doesn't really allow for i think the other person's perspective very much because you sort mm-hmm. of have your version of them you put them on your pedestal um and that's it it that it kind of it kind of ends there i think and um and i think that's also why i was so interested in humor because i think humor has this um, anarchic quality and has this possibility to open new spaces because with humor you can get mm-hmm. to people um, and they almost can't help it they're gonna laugh <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> they like a lot of especially German readers have described this sensation whereby they laugh and then they take a moment and they say oh my god was I allowed to laugh about this you know mm-hmm. who's allowed to laugh about this but they did and I think in that moment you you maybe um, create a possibility for for a new way of of looking at things and a new mm. way of of having this conversation. I think I think one thing that um, struck me as particularly uh, important about the book is the way it intertwines um, a lot of a lot of these a lot of these issues. So, of course, you know we've talked a lot about already about the the concept of history, but when you're when you're a, a german of the sort of the generation of the, the narrator in this in this novel you 
history also means family. Um, and so there's the um, there's a moment where uh, she says, you know, now that my grandfather is dead, we're left to grapple with the will of an old man who was a stranger to us. And there's this kind of idea that it's not, you know, history is not just something which which happened on a sort of uh, a national on a kind of communal scale. It's also something which which happened within within families. And you see different ways of handling that. Like one thing that people often joke about in France is that sort of everyone's grandparents was in the resistance. Yeah. Uh, and that's a sort of maybe a, a sort of a particularly uh, disingenuous way to to deal with it. But there is that that implication that yeah when you when you talk with a a German of in their thirties today, for example, about the Second World War, you're not just talking about something their country were was involved in. You're also talking about something that their grandparents w- may have participated in, and that their parents would have been very very shaped by the process of dealing, you know, with the fallout of these of these actions. And that seems to be something that sort of intertwining of those two concepts of sort of of nation and national responsibility and family responsibility also seems to weigh quite heavily on the on the narrator and the appointment. Yes, totally. That's one of the uncomfortable spaces, I think, because people I think by now are okay with saying yes, yes, uh, the country was fascist and, you know, all of these terrible things happened. But I think it's still uncomfortable to to admit to yourself that this is <clears throat> who you are and that this is where you're coming from because the generation of your grandparents or great-grandparents will in some form have been involved in this. Um, and I think it's also something special about my generation is that we are the last ones whose grandparents might still be alive. My grandparents are still alive, for instance. Mm. So I still have this um, this personal link, um, but which people who are 10, 15 years younger than me, they're not going to have this anymore. Um, in terms of, I mean, the perpetrators and survivors, there are very few of them <clears throat> left. And... Um, and I think that's one of the spaces where we where we need to go, but it's obviously uncomfortable uh, to go there. Um, and I'm also very interested in how the generation of our parents, but also, for instance, my grandmother, she would have been 15 when the war ended. So, hmm. you know, you could say, yes, she was, she was young. She wouldn't have been a, sort of an active perpetrator herself. But of course, that generation was schooled under fascism. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, a full full indoctrination. And these people then, not my grandma personally, but um, they would run the country, right, at some point. Mm-hmm. And, th- and they are people who were, who were schooled uh, under fascism. These are things that that interest me. Um, but, but yes, of, of course, this... Uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but, but the ending of the book, you know, is this... Um, she she reveals who her great grandfather actually was, and mm-hmm. um, in some ways, of course, the book is a form of a confession. I think mm-hmm. she speaks to someone who's who's Jewish, and she she just tells him everything. She says, "Look, this mm-hmm. is this is who I am, or this is also what I am. This is where I come from." And um, 
like my mother knew what I had written about. And she said, the first thing I did, I read the last two pages of the book, you know, because <laughs> I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to know what you, what you did. Um, but of course it, it shapes, it shapes families so much, I think, you know, mm. to, and then, you know, you have to come to terms with that, that this is who your ancestors were. And, and that's also why there is, I mean, there's a lot of irony in the book and, you know, what the, the, what she's about to do to her body. But there's also something, there is this incredible German desire to be Jewish. I mean, people mm -hmm. would love, they would just, I think similar to you, you saying that the French people, they all would have loved to have been in the resistance. The discovering a sort of a, a, a Jewish grandmother is like striking gold because then you suddenly, you know, you, you, you're not, you're not on the side of the perpetrators anymore, then you can sort of, <laughs> you, you can be free from that. And there's, there's quite, it sometimes um, takes on quite absurd dimensions in, mm -hmm. in Germany, this, this, you know, desire to. It's almost like there's a form of absolution that comes from discovering these, these ancestors. Exactly, exactly that. And they always think it would have been easier. And I'm like, that's maybe not true, you know, but uh -huh. um yeah there's at the moment there's there's a huge debate in Germany over that because of um of a writer who for a long time you know started every sentence by saying as someone who's Jewish and then another Jewish writer pointed out you have a Jewish grandfather you're technically not Jewish you know mm -hmm. and um and there's a there's a huge debate over that at the moment but I think at the heart of it is this is this desire to not be German you know or to be German, but also Jewish. But I wonder if you do sometimes feel like Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Seligman. Do you feel like you are creating monsters? I know that's how a lot of people feel about people like me. And I guess they are right in that we are staring in from the outside, that we see through their actions and know all about their little lies. And I think that's what makes us so ugly in their eyes. Knowledge makes people ugly, which is probably why we think that stupid people are easier to fuck or more fuckable, that they are not tainted by the obvious and, not unlike animals, much more in touch with their bodies. Officially, that's of course considered to be a bad thing. At least, that's what I gathered from my mother's complaints whenever I sat with my legs apart, my inability to sit properly, because I never understood why there were two different ways of sitting for people with and without cocks. And I constantly got them wrong, because I was forever confused by the fact that, as a girl, you actually have less to hide than a man. But that was before I understood that a cock is some sort of a sword, an object of pride and comparison, whilst the vagina is something weak, something the owner could hardly be trusted with. Something that will always be a fucky that can be raped and get pregnant and bring shame upon a house and a family. Something that needed protection without anyone ever questioning that need of protection. Why it was that streets weren't safe at night and that girls with short hair looked like boys and not the other way around. 
I always found all of that terribly confusing and often thought that maybe the cocks should be hidden instead, that we should ban the weapon and not the wound. I want to pick up on something you said. Uh, you described the, the monologue as essentially a confessional. Um, and you'd also mentioned that there was, you know, the before um, the, the sort of the, the, the action of the book takes place, um, the narrator had been sent to a therapist and in order to, to get, get out of the therapy had kind of come up with this idea of sexy Hitler. Um, and it's, it's, it struck me just as you said that, that what, I wonder what it was about the uh, Dr. Seligman that allowed the narrator to confess to him rather than to the therapist. So um, obviously there's the the fact that he's uh, Jewish, but also it's the fact that he's a doctor important, do you think, to the narrator? Like the fact that he is in some way sort of involved directly with the kind of the manipulation and alteration of her body. Do you think that in some way sort of liberates her to, yes. to confess to him? I think that's it because he um, knows about her body, right? Mm -hmm. He knows about her sort of, but she sort of has two, well, secrets, if you want. And the, the, the secret of her, of her past, that's the thing he doesn't know about that she's telling him about, but she's telling the reader about, about what's going on with her body. And, and he knows about that. And she doesn't have to explain that part of herself to him anymore mm -hmm. and i um i mean i i do believe in therapy and all of that but i also think that um it's it's very important to always take our physical reality into consideration as well mm -hmm. like when i write i usually start with the body i'm like okay but we are here <laughs> in the flesh mm -hmm. no not just in our minds um and i think that's part of her liberation because even if ultimately her project of you know not trying not to be german anymore is, <laughs> is 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 maybe not going to be successful i think she's still going to be um liberated in some form mm -hmm. i think what what one aspect where i think she is quite liberated uh, already and like before um again before the the monologue takes place is on her in her sexual life and you know both in the um the way in which she uh, has conducted it in the past but also in the way that she is i think able to articulate it like there's a there's a a frankness and a sort of an, an acceptance of the the inherent weirdness of sexuality and the in, and the fact that sort of so many factors from from our life from our family from our history from our circumstances will shape and will mould um our our sexuality um in, in 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 different ways um what do you think underlies that sort of that liberation is there sort of something a little bit that sort of you know when you do have to face up to certain of the sort of the great horrors of life and of history the kind of the the little sort of travails of sexuality seem almost inconsequential and therefore you can sort of uh, engage with them and handle them better. 
may, maybe, maybe the it's the sexy Hitler that helped her. No, I think it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's also because she obviously um, doesn't, you know, she doesn't really believe in in like gender and the gender binary. And I think she has sort of taken that step to um towards seeing the world differently into she she sort of says, Okay, but what if I don't wanna do this? You know, what if mm -hmm. I don't want to be a woman, you know? Mm -hmm. Um and I think with that comes great liberation in a sense that she suddenly sees all the like ridiculous rules that that govern your identity as a woman you know mm -hmm. and i think she's thrown everything out of the window basically and and i think that allows her to talk so openly because i think um there's always this sort of element of shame about mm -hmm. if, if you want to talk about i think especially a female body if you want to talk about it so openly i think there's mm -hmm. always um an element of of shame because ultimately i think women are very um kind of you know constrained to sort of they, they always still want to feel or be attractive i think because mm -hmm. it's so ingrained that you kind of <laughs> and i think a lot of these <clears throat> narratives where they are meant to be talking very openly they still respect that boundary right where mm -hmm. you where you still want to be a sort of an object of sexual desire mm -hmm. and i think th this protagonist is almost craving the opposite she's almost craving a sort of a body that's actually not very desirable in the eyes <laughs> of the world um and it's been very interesting for me because i i i'm sort of fortunate enough that the book will be put on stage and in mm. in Italy in Milan and I spoke yeah. to the director and he said we're going to cast someone but it's going to be so difficult to cast someone with the right body because mm. this isn't someone who's conventionally attractive that's not someone who wants to be sexy you know mm -hmm. and and I think she and I think maybe that's what allows her to be so free because she she's just like no fucks given <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she sort of she's kind of done with it and yeah. um and maybe that's what gives her that that freedom mm. because... but it wasn't uh, always the case for her and that's something we um we discover like there's a moment where she says um you know for years my feet alone made me feel like an ogre and like she um she talks about how her um, her mother had this idea about you know uh you know the, the the wobbling bums and things like that that sort of was, was an absolute sort of an absolute crime in a sense a crime against sort of not just oneself but like society almost um and we get the sense that one of the ways that she was able to you know not give a fuck was through this kind of relationship which is unpacked through the book with um k as the as the person is um as a person is named and um this was this was a character which is sort of a part of it and i don't like to kind of second guess novelists or to sort of ask for more because in a, a book particularly as kind of as sort of tightly written as 
the appointment. I wouldn't have wanted necessarily more digressions. But I think Kay was the character that I guess in a sense left me most curious about because you give us you give us a certain amount about him, certain sort of episodic moments, but you don't give us, let's say, a a fully kind of rounded character study of of Kay. And I, I'm just curious from the perspective as a writer, like how um, did you always know that we would just get glimpses of Kay and that you would always kind of withhold um, a lot about him? Or was that just the way kind of the, the sort of the monologue unraveled as you were writing it? Um, no, I think it, it works in a way better if he remains this kind of slightly mysterious figure. And I guess his, um, his function in a way is to make her realize all these things um, about herself. But of course, Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of sadness in the book. And I think he also sort of represents um, her sadness. And of course, by not, not giving a fuck anymore, she also loses, Mm -hmm. she gains, but she also loses um, a lot of things. Uh, Some people said they were disappointed because they thought it's disappointing that she falls in love. And I was like, no, but people fall in love, of course. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, he, he also represents this, I think, which is a big conflict for a lot of women who, you know, um, object to the patriarchy and object to all of these things, but they still find men attractive, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's like, uh, it's conflict. I think that a lot of us sort of, you know, carry and and, and have to deal with. And um, no, I, I liked for Kay to stay sort of almost anonymous, but mm-hmm. um, um, because I think it's more, it's just what she wants to wants to reveal. And of course, mm-hmm. her relationship with him is also questionable um, mm-hmm. in in some ways. And and. And, and she reveals towards the end what what, what happened there, mm. um, and and the relationship with the mother I think is also an important for me it's a very important kind of subplot in that mm-hmm. she she almost liberates them both I think and I think the relationship between mothers and daughters is a very important pillar almost of the of the patriarchy because that's where all these um, you know stereotypes and rules for for female bodies get perpetuated and and you're right she suffered from this for many years until she sort of broke out of it mm-hmm. um and that's when she's i think ultimately forgiving her mother because she realizes that it wasn't really her mother's fault so mm. Mm. one thing um just just well kind of resting with um with Kay for a moment is um, I the sort of I guess I want to talk about the kind of the the sort of the sexual mechanics in a way because I mentioned in the introduction that um, I guess one of the most sort of surprising recurring subjects of conversation or, or in the monologue is uh, sort of sex robots or sort of sex machines um, and I guess one of the ways that people sort of generally set up this kind of dichotomy between sort of you know the the kind of the you know the sex robots and the kind of the the sort of the emotional sort of sort of empathetic connection of sort of two people sort of making love i guess um some a term which actually <laughs> the narrator takes issue with in the book as well um 
But that's not the sort of dichotomy that she sets up because with Kay, there is something that she kind of appreciates about the the kind of the mechanical way, at least at the start of their relationship, that both of them sort of approach approach sex. Well, I think with Kay, she sort of deliberately goes for a man who's not really available because he's married, he's got he's got children, so there is this sort of um boundary there from the beginning. Um but I think she she's obviously she's quite lonely and I think mm-hmm. um she realizes that comfort is something quite dangerous or a certain kind of comfort that um that we seem to seek or that we're meant to be seeking is I think um quite you know I find it quite problematic. There is the um German philosopher Simmel, he once said comfort isolates and I think it's mm. it's it's very true that um being too comfortable makes us can make us quite lonely um mm-hmm. and so I think she even though somehow she's not really capable I think of of being in a sort of conventional um relationship I, I think she still she still tries because I think even in a sort of mechanical situation like this you will have a a reaction and Mm -hmm. it's still another person and you sort of have to engage with that um and of course with k it all goes wrong because he doesn't treat it as a or towards the end he doesn't treat it as a as a mechanical um situation and i think there is something good about losing um comfort i mean even at the moment this is not sex robots but this is because <laughs> um, you know on this like uh beautiful island where, where i live we, we don't really have petrol at the moment mm-hmm. and um which of course has nothing to do with brexit and <laughs> and you can't just take an uber anymore for instance mm-hmm. it's either very expensive or they just don't come and you are you have to take public transport again mm-hmm. um which I think in a, some ways is maybe a good experience, you know. I think sometimes losing comfort can be it can be a, a good thing, and I'm I'm always wary mm. of of being too comfortable. And I think the sex robot, apart from the fact, of course, that they are, you think, usually built for men. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure there are. That's her dream, of course, is to get this sex robot sort of made <laughs> <laughs> made for her. But I think she is just like she's sort of not talking into a void she's talking to to dr zilligman i think she's also aware of the fact that um you need other people i think Mm -hmm. twisted as she is i think she still uh she still knows and she's scared of loneliness as as Mm. i think we all are um Mm -hmm. i guess it's one of the, the sort of the necessary conditions of a sort of a uh a monologue which takes place over a few hours in one um in in one in one space and between two people like it's sort of things are never going to be uh entirely resolved mm. um and i but i also think that often it's a kind of the novelist's tendency to tie up as many loose ends as possible to leave the reader to let the reader leave with a certain sense of kind of of kind of an arc being complete or you know loose ends being tied together at least as much as possible and one of the things I think is perhaps the bravest thing about the appointment is that you 
don't do that. I mean, you said earlier, like this this surgical intervention that she's undergoing, like we don't come to the end of it. We don't see the the result it has. We don't see the effect it has on our on her life. Uh, we don't see the outcome of so many of the um, the strands of stories that she that she exposes during this kind of limited period of time. Um, so I think just to, to to finish today, one thing that I'm curious about is has the story continued for you? I always knew that with a voice like this, it has to be quite a short piece. Now you can't mm. do this over 300 pages because people will, <laughs> right? It's the sort of, it's asking to, to, to be quite a short book. I could have written more. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I loved writing that voice and I, I sort of had to, I think, stop myself from, you know, overdoing it. Um, and she's still present for me. I like to think that she's in a happier place in some ways, a, a more liberated um, place. But uh, I, I'm not going to write Dr. Seligman's voice. People have asked me to do it, but I'm... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> like the, the response. <laughs> the response. <laughs> Um, and I do think that a lot of things in life are an open wound, right? They're mm-hmm. never going to be resolved. And it's something that we create artificially in, in certain formats, which I think is one reason why the crime format is so popular, because it gives you this sense that things are resolved and there's a, there's a solution, even though solution is a bit of a dark word. But, you know, there's like um, things make sense in the end, but I think mm-hmm. usually they don't well katarina that is all we've got time for um the appointment is of course available from shakespeare and company uh both in store and uh online um it's also of course available from your local independent bookstore wherever that may be and in more or less whichever language you would like to (laughs) to read it at the moment (laughs) um it's such a an astonishing liberating funny exciting um radical book um i hope that's uh come across to to our listeners in in in, in the conversation i'm sure it has but all that remains for me to say is katarina volkmer thank you so so much for joining us today no thank you so much this has been great thanks for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast with me adam biles since you've made it this far i hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using The theme music is Mr. Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.